You're listening to TIP. Everyone's like, oh, Alan got lucky in real estate. And it's like, well, I put myself in position to get lucky. And it wasn't that I was buying it because I saw this payday. It was, I wanted these little small ATM machines. On today's show, I chat with Alan Corey about why he chose to approach fire using real estate instead of the stock market, how he deals with labels and stereotypes of being quote unquote different and too cheap, and how he manages to not be bothered by them, his definition of good debt and how to use that to achieve one's financial goals, what he means by buying lottery tickets, and a ton more. Alan Corey is an Atlanta-based realtor, real estate investor, and author of the book House Fire. This is one of my personal favorite episodes to date. Now, I do want to admit that the strategies we talk about in this episode are not for everybody, but for those who are really trying to maximize their potential and grow their wealth the most they can, Alan and I believe what we talk about today to be the way to do that. In this episode, we talk a bit about RVs and how I'm getting into the RV investing and RV rental business. And we actually recorded this a couple of weeks ago. And at that point, I had purchased the RV, but I hadn't actually listed it for rent anywhere. As of today, the RV has been rented four or five times. It's actually doing really, really well. I'm excited to share more about this with you guys, maybe in a future episode. If you want to learn a little bit more, you can go to realestateinvestingwideopen.com or investorshadow.com. I share a bunch of details about RV investing, what I got going on with the RV and some of my other real estate investing. You can check those out there. The whole conversation wasn't about RVs, but a part of it was, and a lot has changed since this conversation in just a week or two. And so I wanted to be sure I gave you guys a quick update on where I'm at with the RV business and where you can find out more information if you're looking to learn more. I really, really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you guys do too. Let's dive in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Alan Corey. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. The truth is, I really don't know where to start. I came across your most recent book on Amazon. The cover caught my eye. Then the testimonials hooked me. And I liked the content. So I reached out and asked you to come on the show. And then my research took a turn that I didn't really expect. And I saw you were on the Bigger Pockets podcast, which that piece wasn't really all that shocking. But then I came across a video on YouTube called Alan Corey Sampler. And I was quite surprised, not in a bad way. I was just surprised. But before we get into all of your real estate stuff, which I think is fascinating too, and I'm excited for, tell us a bit about your background, your interesting career, and what happened with all of those reality TV shows. When I was growing up, I wanted to live the big city dreams. Came from the suburbs of Georgia. And so as soon as I graduated college, I moved to New York to be a stand up comedian. That was how I was going to get rich. That's how I was going to make my money. And so that brought me to the stages of New York City. And from there, I learned quickly beginning stand up comedians don't make a whole lot of money, and especially ones that aren't very funny. So that I had those things working against me. But 
I knew if I could get on TV, then maybe I could get some money. I could get discovered or whatever. You know, you're chasing that star as every actor and comedian and musician tries to do. And so the way to get on reality TV is honestly, if they're casting for reality TV, they come to the comedy clubs to cast the men and they go to the modeling agencies to cast the women, at least back when I was doing this about 13, 15 years ago. And so they knew we would make good TV. We would be funny. We'd be willing to be engaged and we would talk. And then the girls look pretty. That was the formula when I was sort of bopping around to the six or seven different reality TV shows that I got on. And so that was great. I got on TV. But then what I realized is you don't get paid to be on reality TV. So you have to have a product with you, which is why every like the Real Housewives of whatever city they're always selling a cookbook or a fashion line or some sort of alcoholic beverage or a record. Like That's how you make your money. You're basically getting a commercial on network TV. I was like, oh, I need to get a product if I'm going to keep doing this. And also, I need to leave my day job because I wasn't getting any sleep I was, you know, or taking all my vacation days to be on reality TV. So all of this was a winding path to saying, well, hey, if I started investing in real estate, I could be a landlord, I would have some passive income, I could leave my day job, and I could focus on comedy or focus on reality TV. And what happened was, once I made that mental switch and I bought a few properties, I was like, wait a minute, I don't care about comedy. I don't care about reality TV. I really love this real estate stuff, and it pays way better. And so then I went all in on real estate, and that's led to three book deals at this point. How did you go from being a comedian and the reality TV shows to real estate? What was the connection there? Did you find a book? Did you stumble on bigger pockets? Did you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad? What was the connection to real estate? I was in New York City. I was living in the projects, Spanish Harlem projects. Only person there that didn't speak Spanish, but it was the cheapest place I could find. And it was an illegal sublet renting a bedroom from some roommates that were there. And But everywhere I walked around New York, it was like people were in fancy cars, people were dining in these awesome restaurants, wearing the nice suits as I was walking around. And I was like, how do I get to that? Like, how do I get there? Like, what am I missing? Because I came from the suburbs and I've never been in a really big city. And I thought all I had to do was go to college and I'd make a lot of money. And I graduated college and I was working a $40,000 job tech support during the day. And so I just devoured every book I could. This was 2000, 2001, before the YouTube and the podcast and all that stuff. So I literally just went to the library, got every single book on financial planning and investment and real estate, stocks, everything, anything that had anything in the business section and the investing section. And I was like, I'm going to learn this stuff. I don't have a mentor. I don't have any rich person in my life. I've never had that person. So I just have to teach myself. And I just devoured every book. And yes, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was one of them, but I also read like a hundred of them. But what stuck with me was, okay, I can invest in stocks and I don't have much control. It's like, yeah, I should be doing this and 401k and IRA, I can get some tax savings. But at the end of the day, I can't go into a CEO's office and say, hey, fire this person and change this in your product. Like I had no control. Just like at my day job, I felt like I didn't have any control. Someone was controlling my income. I could only work so hard. There was no loyalty. But with real estate, I had control of everything. I could purchase it. I get to control the renovations. I get to control the tenants who I want to allow in there or not to some extent, when I want to sell it, how much I want to rent it for. I was control of everything. 
And that's like, okay, that's it. If I could just control everything, then I feel comfortable investing in it and putting a lot of money into it because it's going to be my time and money. And it just made sense. I'd lived in a house, I'd lived in an apartment. I know what that's like. I know what people expect. They just want something safe and comforting. And so I was like, I can do that. They're like every landlord I've ever had in my life was a complete idiot. And I was like, that's the bar I have to hit. I can hit that bar. Just it'll take a few books and then just I'll wing it. And no one will know that I'm winging it because every other landlord I've had is an idiot. And so from there, I came up with a plan and I said, if I could just buy one property a year for five years in a row, I would have enough money to replace my day job. And so I had an exit plan at 22. I was like, I'm going to leave my day job at 27. All I need to do is five years, five properties. If I'm cash flowing two to 300 bucks on each of these properties, that'll be what I was getting paid at work after taxes. And so that, that became my plan. And I went all in on that. And, and then I was like, then I can focus on comedy. Then I can focus on TV. And I was like, oh, wait, no, no, no. I just want to focus on real estate. And now we're here talking on your podcast. You mentioned that you were in New York City. You saw all these people in these fancy restaurants, fancy cars, having nice houses or apartments in these big skyscrapers. Did you see those wealthy people and then realize that they were in real estate and that kind of, or some of them or a lot of them were in real estate? And so that kind of like gave you the itch to read a little bit about real estate when you got to that library? Or was it just literally that investing section at the library had some real estate books and you just got into it and it made sense? Or how was that? Yeah, no, I mean, everyone that I asked what they did, they were like in hedge funds and Wall Street investing. Those were the wealthy people that I would be like, what do you do for a living? And then I'd look into that and be like, oh, I've got to go to Ivy League college. I've got to be super connected through private schools and high schools that I didn't go to. I need to have grown up in New York or Connecticut. And I didn't do any of those things. And so I was like, I just skipped over that and was like, I don't have that background. I don't have that privilege. And then with stocks, it was like, okay, this makes sense. I can be a retail stock trader and make my own sort of trades. But again, I'm not in complete control. But real estate, I didn't need any education, formal education. I didn't need any networking. I didn't need any license. You know, I wasn't a broker or anything. I was just an investor. And so the bar of entry was so low. I was like, I have to do this. You know, like this is, I can't do any of these other huge wealth creation type of occupations. This is all I've got. And so let's make this work. But I feel like there may be an elephant in the room here, and that is you didn't have any money. So how do you get invested in real estate, right? With the stock market, you're right, you don't have control, but you could go buy a share of a company for $10 or $20 or $50 or whatever. And now you're already an investor. Whereas with real estate, you're right, you don't have all these. It's a low barrier to entry, like you said, but it takes more money typically than a stock does. So, what did you do about getting into real estate with no money? So, this was my first book, A Million Bucks by 30. I went extreme on my savings. And I don't necessarily recommend this for everyone, but at the time, I had this goal. I wanted to have a million bucks by 30. I'm just going to do it. And because I didn't have that high income, I had to save as much as I could from my $40,000 salary. So that I could go invest it, right? And so what I did was, well, I was living in the Harlem projects, paying 400 bucks a month in rent, which everyone else, all my friends in New York, the cheapest they were paying was maybe 1,200 bucks. So I was already cutting down there. I took a bus everywhere and a subway, a subway pass. Never took a taxi cab. Everyone else was doing that. I ate way too many ramen noodles because I could buy them in bulk at the bodega and for 13 cents each, and that was my lunch. I drank water when I went out with my friends instead of like shots and stuff like that. 
But I still partook in those things. I still went to the birthday parties and the events and stuff. But also, I was performing in the clubs most nights. So a lot of the entertainment, I was providing the entertainment rather than spending money on being entertained. But that was my nightlife and that was my scene. And all my friends were comedians who don't have money either a lot of times too. So I just went really, really extreme in my savings. And basically, I was able to save 61% of my income. And what I told myself was, I'm going to put all these savings. I went to my HR at my day job and I said, put 50% of my salary into this bank account that's across town in Manhattan. It's, I don't have a bank card there. This was before all the online stuff. So I had to physically be there. And then I said, take 50% and put it in this account, which is my daily spending account. But also from that 50%, take out money for automatic withdrawals for the 401k and the IRA and everything like that. So I was living off. of that $40,000 salary at the end of the day. And what I told myself is, I'm just going to live, spend the money that it's in my accessible account. That was it. I just basically forced myself (laughs) in some sort of small level of poverty. And I said, at January 1st of every single year, I'm going to walk across town to that other bank, see how much money I've been able to save. And however amount that is, that's my down payment on real estate property. So if there was $5,000, $5,000, then I got to find a way to spend $5,000. If there was $15,000, then I would have spent $15,000. That first year, after my first year of extreme saving, living below my means, it didn't feel like I was living below my means because it was just, this is what's in my checking account. I walked in January 1st, it was $10,000. And I was like, great, $10,000, that's 10% on a $100,000 property. Even back in 2001, there was no properties for $100,000. But I didn't give up. I was just looking, I was scouring websites. And eventually I found one apartment in Brooklyn. I had never been in Brooklyn before. And this was before anyone was interested in going to Brooklyn. And it was listed for $110,000. I went and I just decided I'm going to buy this property no matter what. This is the only thing I have close to a 10% down payment on. Put in an offer of $100,000. They ignored it. Followed up two weeks later, put an offer of $100,000. They ignored it. Followed up two more weeks later. I said, guys, let's make this work. Here's a $100,000 offer. And finally they accepted it. And for there, that was my entry into real estate. And it was house hacking. It was a one-bedroom apartment. I moved in. I took this very heavy curtain and basically siphoned off the living room and called that a second bedroom. Got a roommate to pay to live in that bedroom that basically covered my mortgage payment. And I just stayed on that same track. Whatever I could save in that hard-to-reach it's even hard to reach now because I was living in Brooklyn and this bank was still in Manhattan. But this was year one. Year two, I'm going to do the same thing. So year two, I was able to save a little bit more because I wasn't paying mortgage or rent and I had $15,000. And so I was like, okay, well, what can I go buy for $15,000? And in my neighborhood, I walked down the street and there was this boarded up duplex for sale. It was $450,000. And I was going to try to buy it with a primary residence loan. And at the time, the products have changed now. But at the time, they're like, okay, we can do this at, for 10% down, but I only have $15,000. So I created this spreadsheet and I was like, guys, all I need is $30,000. And I went to my friends, I went to my family, and I said, here is a spreadsheet. If I can buy this house, I can rent this room for $500. I can rent this room for $500. I can rent this for $500. And it was basically a six-bedroom house because it was a three-bedroom duplex and a three-bedroom duplex. And I just presented the spreadsheet to 
all my friends who basically had those good jobs. And I was like, I just need to borrow $5,000. I need to borrow $5,000. And I just, I went to six friends, got $5,000 each, and I presented them this plan on a spreadsheet. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just like, guys, this makes sense. I'm going to borrow $5,000 from you, but I'm going to pay you back $7,000 in a year and a half. Just look at these numbers. And they all took a chance on me, thankfully. I don't know why. I, I think the math convinced them. And that's exactly what happened. I paid them all back within a year and a half. They got 50% return on their money. And then from there, I had all my bills paid. I also moved into one of the bed. I moved out of my Brooklyn apartment and moved into the duplex. And then we called it the House of Clowns. I had five roommate comedians. And from there, I was pretty much, you would call that now today, lean fire. The fire movement didn't exist back in 2001, 2002, but fire stands for financially independent and retire early. And that's basically you've reached a point where you can live off your savings or live off your income indefinitely. And I hit that point and it was great because then I could leave my day job. But what I realized is, wait, I want to do this again. I want to buy my third property in year three and I need to have a day job. I need to have some sort of employment in order to get approved for the mortgage. So I actually kept my day job for another four or five years. So just because, not because I needed the money, but I needed to have employment in order to get approved. And I just kept roller coastering on there. And from now, I've got over 200 properties and I've just never stopped. So instead of buying one a year, I'm buying 10 a month kind of thing. How did you plan to pay those people back? The rent itself, the numbers was like, I said, here, what was it? Like 600, I was basically making $3,000 rental income on that house. My mortgage payment was going to be about $2,200 or something. I don't know the exact numbers. It's in the book. But basically, I was like, there's an $800 profit right there. $800 profit plus my day job income, I can combine this all and pay everyone back. So the house, the duplex paid them back. I didn't have to come out of pocket. The income that it generated paid everyone back faster than I thought. And then that, it just went from there. So did you have to use any of your W-2 income to help fund some of that? Or was the 800 a month in profit enough to cover it? We're going back you know, 15 years. I want to say that I might have gotten like a $5,000 bonus at work, or I was able to, to raise the rent on my old Brooklyn apartment, get more than what I was paying on that mortgage there. But I know I had a plan going in that I'd pay them all back within three years, and I ended up paying them all back in a year and a half. So I paid ahead of schedule, but it was one of those things where I wasn't worried because this is an ATM machine and it's spitting out money, and I'm just going to give you this money until we're all even kind of thing. And then what's great is what happens is if you do that, everyone gets paid back and they made a lot of money. They all say, Alan, I want to invest again, right? <laughs> then you're like, yeah, I want to buy more too. And so we just sort of went, kept going and rolling with it. Assuming that you probably hadn't thought of this or considered it too much back then because you were relatively new in real estate, but what did you think about maintenance and repairs? Because obviously... The delta just between your rent and your mortgage isn't necessarily pure profit. I mean, we got to put some aside for maintenance and repairs, but I'm thinking you didn't think of that back then. So, how did you manage that piece of it? Yeah, so yeah, you're right. Like now, before I buy a property, I'll say, well, 10% of this income is going to go to repairs, 10% to a property manager, 10% for vacancy. At that time, the way I looked at it was hey, if I was like one of my friends and paying 700 bucks a month in rent or paying $1,000 a month in rent, I'm saving that because I'm actually I'm also living in this house too. So in my head, I was like, I should earmark as if I am paying rent somewhere. And then also, I still maintain that other bank account across town. So that was going to be my what am I going to invest every January 1st? But also, hey, if things go south, 
I don't know how much money is in that account over across town, but it's probably going to be enough to get me through any sort of extreme situation. And I've credit cards and I've got like all the other tools that people get in problematic debt with. Those are all options too, but I probably was more optimistic than I should, but it worked out. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. You mentioned that you put 10% down on these first two properties. Is that just the products that were available back then? I mean, we don't see that today that often. So was that just the type of mortgage products that were available back then? Yeah. Well, so they do exist now because these were owner-occupied. I was living in the property. So you can actually go buy owner-occupied rentals. For less than 10% today. Yeah. For 3% right now or 0% if you're a VA, a VA loaner. Yeah. So at the time, it was sort of fast and loose. I bought a $100,000 apartment. That duplex was $450,000. So giving someone basically a loan on $450,000, they make $40,000 at work. That may be a little bit tricky now. And collecting money from friends, I think that's a little bit more regulated. But that was products that I didn't know there were other products. I don't even know why I thought I had to have 10% down. But I think that's maybe how the numbers worked a little bit on my spreadsheet as well. I was going to ask you about that, if how you were able to collect the money from friends to use that for the down payment, because that's a really a big no-no today, at least for the most part. I mean, you could get gifts here and there, but for the most part, it's hard to get financing by taking money from friends. 
I think it was because this was right after three or four years after college. All my friends have the first professional day job and they're basically being an adult for the first time. And I think we all kind of looked at each other and we're like, wait a minute, I don't have kids yet. We're still having roommates and sharing things, but I've got $5,000. I know I should invest it in something. Should it be stocks? Should it be real estate? And I don't know. I guess I'm that trustworthy friend who's always followed through. I've always been very entrepreneurial and I've always talked money. And they saw the sacrifices that I was making too. Like, Alan's going to take the bus and we're going to take the cab and we'll see you in, in 20 minutes at the party. Okay, no problem. You know, like, so I think I had validated that I'm not going to just crazily spend their money either. Do you still own those two properties today? <laughs> no, but, but it made me a millionaire. So the first property that I bought for 450, I sold about three years ago for $2 million. And the other one I sold for $180,000 about two years after I bought it. So I made an $80,000 profit tax-free, which capital gains tax benefit. So selling that Brooklyn apartment for 180, I had $80,000 cash that I was able to accelerate and buy more property from there. I'm glad that you held one of them until... I mean, even three years ago, that's pretty recent. I'm glad because I was curious to know what those were worth today. I mean, we know what New York City real estate is like. It's some of the most expensive in the world. So I was curious to hear what 100000 or even a $400,000, $450,000 property back then would be today. And like you said, you sold one for $2 million just three years ago. That's a big gain. This is part of my book and House Fire, Financial Independence Retire Early. Properties come with, I'd say, imaginary lottery tickets. I didn't buy that property because I thought it would be a $2 million property, right? I bought that property because it made me 500 bucks a month You know, after all expenses made. That's why I bought a property. And then I would go buy another property because that made me 200 bucks a month. And what happens is if you spread out all your investments, it's like investing in a mutual fund, right? If one claps, the other ones are going to support it. But if one takes off, then great, you benefit from there. I was investing in Brooklyn again because when I was investing in Brooklyn, it was 99 cent stores, liquor stores on every corner, vacancies. And then when I left Brooklyn, I'm in Atlanta now, I sold my houses to celebrities. There was Chipotle's, there was Starbucks, there's the Brooklyn Nets Stadium. Like the neighborhood has changed. I didn't bank on that, but. Everyone's like, oh, Alan got lucky in real estate. And it's like, well, I put myself in position to get lucky. And it wasn't that I was buying it because I saw this payday. It was, I wanted these little small ATM machines and they add up collectively to replace my day job income. And then, wow, I really benefited. And this kind of goes back to good debt and bad debt. If you don't mind, I'd like to talk about this a lot because when I was growing up, I had the Dave Ramseys, I had the Susie Orman. Those were the talking heads, right? And they're all about, not using debt and paying off things. And what I've learned now, now that I'm older, I'm 43 now, all that education is great if you want to go from negative net worth to zero net worth. Like that's the steps you have to go through to go from negative net worth to zero net worth. My philosophy, my way of teaching money, which I put in House Fire, is how you go from zero net worth to crazy generational wealth network, and that is using debt. And I'll give you a quick example of what I mean by that. So let's say someone has $100,000 to invest, and they buy one rental property, one house, and they rent that out for $1,000 a month. There's no mortgage. Maybe there's some repairs or whatnot. Let's just make the numbers easy. They make $12,000 at the end of the year, $1,000 a month on this paid off rental. And let's say the property increases in value by 10% in five years or whatnot. Okay, great. It's now $110,000 property. They made $10,000 on this property and not a bad investment. 
What could they have done better? Well, they could have taken that $100,000 and bought five properties with today's loan products. That's $20,000 down payment on five different $100,000 properties. What we get from there is after the mortgage payment and expenses and everything like that, each property is only producing $200 in income instead of 1,000. But 200 times five is 1,000. So it's the exact same thing, right? I'm making $1,000, I'm making $1,000 with my one house, or I'm making $1,000 with five homes. Now, let's say the property goes up in value 10%. The real estate market value typically goes up about 3% a year. Inflation goes up about 2% a year. So a house kind of goes up about 1% or 1.5% a year in value. But let's say five, 10 years from now, this house goes up in 10% in value. Well, you got five of them. So now you made $50,000, right? So with that same $100,000, I could have been super safe, put in one house, and it went up in value $10,000. Or I spread it across five houses, and it goes up $50,000. But it goes further than that. If I do nothing else and just pay off the mortgage, let's say all five of these homes have 30-year mortgages, in 30 years, let's say the house price is double which isn't unreasonable. If you buy a $100,000 house in 30 years, it's probably going to be worth $200,000. So if you did plan A, well, great. You doubled your money. You now have $200,000 net worth. But if you did plan B, you have doubled five homes in value from $100,000 to $200,000. You're now a millionaire. You made a million dollars. Not only that, you're reducing risk at the same time because it's the same concept. If that one house that you have Burns to the ground, you lost $100,000. But if you have five houses that you only put $20,000 down payment into and it burns to the ground, you only lost $20,000. If you have one vacancy in that one house, you make $0. Maybe it's vacant for three months. But if you have one vacancy in one across a five home portfolio, you're still profiting because those four other homes are kicking off $200 each and that'll probably cover the mortgage of that fifth house. So you're Also, buying five lottery tickets, right? Maybe one of these, there'll be a new park that opens up. Maybe there'll be a charter school that opens up in one of these five homes. I have all my eggs in one basket if I put it in one house. So that's what I teach in my book, House Fire Financial Independence Retire Early Through Houses, is that you actually reduce your risk by getting mortgages. And this is what I mean by good debt. And it also can 5X your income. If just your properties go up in value 10%, I've made. $50,000 instead of $10,000. So that's the way to look at it. I didn't get taught that by Susie Orman or Dave Ramsey. I had to learn that on my own and building my own spreadsheets and investing. And things happened to me and be like, wait a minute, why is this happening? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? How come I'm creating more wealth than this all cash investor? And I really kind of dug in deep and this is what I learned. I really, really like that a lot because that's exactly my philosophy. I think we are perfectly 100% aligned on that. That is exactly how I invest myself. That's what I believe is the right way as well. And people that listen to the podcast for a while know that I tend to be a little bit harsh of Dave Ramsey and on social media a little bit too. And I think he's a good guy. Like I don't think he has any misintentions. And like you said, to go from negative to zero net worth, he's great. His strategies honestly work for a lot of people. I think they're probably right for a lot of people. But if you're really somebody like you and I, and probably most people listening to the show that really want to build actual wealth, you don't have to be a billionaire, but just build real wealth. You have to use debt. You have to use good debt and buy rental properties, like you said. I'm curious to hear your opinion on this because this is my other strategy that I wasn't taught from anybody. This, like you, you just kind of stumbled on it. And so, this other strategy that I use from time to time 
is something that I just stumbled on. And that's when I have a lot of people come to me and say, I have $50,000. I want to buy a property. Or if I was in that situation, how much money should I put down? And my personal opinion is that they should always put down the smallest amount of money possible. And the reason I think that is, let's just say you're going to go buy a property. You have $20,000. You say, all right, I could put this whole $20,000 into this property. Great. But now you have no money if anything goes wrong. And so what I think people should do and what I do myself is I put the absolute lowest money down that I can. And then I put the other money that I would have put into the deal that I was willing to put into the deal into reserves. And now I say, okay, I can cover this mortgage for the next 12 months or six months or whatever with those reserves. So really, what is the downside of having a little bit more leverage? I don't see it. I think you're really de-risking yourself by keeping that money in reserves rather than putting it all in the deal. Because if you put it all in the deal, now you have nothing to cover that mortgage if something happens. But if you keep the money in reserves, now you have 6 to 12 months of leeway to cover that mortgage just from those reserves. 100% put as little money in every deal, but make sure that deal still is positive cash flow. You don't want to put 3% down and then you're losing 500 bucks a month. But putting 5% down, 10% if you can, or 15 or 20, instead of 25, 30, 100%. I'm going to piggyback off other reasons why this makes sense. So right now, everyone's worry is of inflation. So what is inflation? Inflation is the cost of goods are going up, right? So if I, I've seen ice cream signs that it used to be a nickel, like in antique shops, right? And now ice cream is like $3. So let's take an example. Cost of goods always go up as the country prints more money through stimulus packages. There's more dollar bills out there. So your dollar bills aren't as rare, which means they're worth less. So let's take an example. And this, I promise you, comes back to why you want the biggest mortgage as possible on all your properties. Let's say you find a Sacagawea coin on the ground right now, right? It's worth $1 and no one keeps those things in their pocket or their wallet. And you just seem to find them on the ground, at least I do. So I have $1. And so I've got two options. I can take this $1, mail it to my mortgage company and reduce my mortgage balance by $1. I paid an extra principal of dollar, right? Or I can go walk into the candy shop and maybe get a bag of candy. Maybe get a Snickers bar for a dollar. I don't know. A sale going on, right? Okay. I had one coin equal to one bag of candy equal $1 principal reduction on my mortgage. That was my thought process, right? Now let's fast forward 15 years in the future. And we're in a cashless society and everyone's driving Teslas. And I unearth this same coin, another coin, like, oh, this is a dollar coin. We used to have these things 15 years ago. And then I have the exact same thought process. I could either go in to the candy store and go buy a Snickers. But when I go in there and Snickers are now $2. So this coin is only worth half a Snicker bar. Or I can mail in this coin to my lender and it's still worth a dollar reduction in principle. My Right. So that means I need to pay in tomorrow's dollars. So the longer it takes me to pay back these debts, my money is stronger. And so, why would you ever prepay your mortgage? Why would you ever put 20 extra bucks on your mortgage payment, which is what all the talking heads tell you to do on TV? It doesn't make sense. Spend that $20 on something or invest it, real estate, invest it in stocks. Go invest that $20 now or buy things. Go buy 20 Snicker bars with it because in the future, you're only going to buy 10 Snicker bars. But that debt is going to be constant. That debt is always going to be the same. Your mortgage payment doesn't change when inflation goes up. 
And so that's another reason why put as little down as possible, get a 30-year mortgage. If you can get a 40-year, 50-year mortgage, even better, because money's just going to get cheaper and cheaper. The payment, those payments are going to get cheaper and cheaper. They're going to feel like it's cheaper and cheaper, and it actually is going to get cheaper and cheaper in the future, which is why the US national debt is never going to be paid off. We owe whatever, $80 trillion, but if we wait to pay it off in 10 years, it's really going to be about $50 trillion. So never pay off these debt, just refinance and kick it the can down the road. Plus, a lot of times these interest rates are super low. One of mine is 2.25% for a 30-year fixed. I'm just like, I will never pay an extra dollar on this property. It is so cheap. Like, Why would you ever do that? Right. So yeah, we didn't even get into that. But yeah, you can borrow money basically at 2% and put it in the stock market. And historically, you'll make 7% or whatever. So yeah, why wouldn't you do that all day? Just leveraging money. Now, these are the things that the Wall Street firms do. This is the stuff that all these rich people learned in Ivy League school and got trained and all their networks paid for it. I'm learning this on my own 20 years later. I'm really enjoying the conversation because it sounds like you and I have a lot of the same philosophy. It sounds like we've come across it the same way. Nobody in my family's ever made any investments. I think I'm the first one in my family to ever make any sort of investment. So I didn't have any mentors or rich people to lean on either. I just kind of figured it out like you. Now, because I have a podcast, I'm connected with some other, I guess you could call financial influencers across social media, whatever you want to call it, people that are just interested in teaching other people about finance. And there's some two or three of them, a couple that I'm relatively good friends with, as good of friends you can be with somebody through a computer. And one of them very, very, very strongly believes in paying off his mortgage. And I forget exactly how much his mortgage was, maybe 300000 or so for his primary residence. And he has been absolutely gangbuster paying this thing off. And Honestly, kudos to him. It's pretty amazing. He's paying it off in five years. It's already, he's got like $10,000 or $20,000 left, which is honestly pretty amazing that he was able to do that himself. But being a believer of the philosophy that we just had, I just don't agree with that decision personally, mostly from a quantitative perspective. But what he always argues when we talk about it is that it's, it's not about the numbers. He said, I don't care about that side of it. I care about the psychology. I care about. I'm going to be living in a house that I don't owe anybody anything on. And I feel super secure about that. And I think this kind of comes back to the Dave Ramsey approach where it gives a lot of people that peace of mind. I think a lot of it is more psychological than it is quantitative. How do you balance that dynamic of what's right from a numbers and financial perspective versus what makes people feel good or what's right from a psychology standpoint? So I did the same thing. I paid off my mortgage and thinking I was going to have great night's sleep. And I couldn't sleep for a month because I was like, I could be making more money. I felt like I was losing money every night that I did not have a mortgage. And my wife was that way. And I was like, listen, honey, (laughs) I always come out with the spreadsheets. I said, listen, this is, we don't have a mortgage. I know this makes you sleep well at night. I can't sleep well at night. But if we do a cash out mortgage, I can take this money and buy this property. And that property would pay for our mortgage payment and more. So I've got two. And so, with math and spreadsheets, I've always won over the arguments. I'm like, here it is. I'm not making this up. And of course, it just sort of happened. That was another property that doubled in value. So not only did it, that rental property pay for our mortgage, but that it appreciated, not because I had any insight. It, just, it was in an appreciating neighborhood and doubled in value. So I basically, because I didn't have a mortgage, I was able to double the value of my house to get that mortgage. And that rental property paid for my mortgage payment. So again, it comes back to wealth. In 30 years, sure, I have two mortgages, 
But in 30 years, I'm going to have two paid off houses. So instead of whatever the numbers are, let's say they're both $500,000 houses. In two years, I'm going to have paid off million dollar assets instead of just one paid off asset of $500,000 that I paid off 27 years ago. The only way I kind of see that it makes sense, and maybe for your friend, is if you own a house that's maybe under $250,000. Because I think at that stage, you're, you're still sort of, um, the returns are going to be marginal. You're still probably paying off some school loans or other car debt and other things. And you might not be negative net worth and you might not be zero net worth, but you're probably in that hundred to 250000 net worth. But once you sort of get past that $250,000 net worth, I went through this at least, your mindset completely changes. And you're like, wait a minute, I went from negative 50000 or negative 100000 whatever your situation is, to zero to two fifty. That's like a $500,000 spread, depending where you started, how big of a hole you started. Then you start thinking differently and you start confident in yourself. Because to get to that period, you've had to do the reps, the financial reps, the negotiation on cell phone contracts, the eating ramen noodles. Like You have control of your money. You have control of your investments. You have control of your bills. You've learned all that. And then at 250, I think you have enough confidence that, oh, if things get tight, I can live below my needs. I know how to ride a bike instead of taking the car or whatever it takes. And then that's when your growth is going to accelerate. But if you've got a $500,000 house that you're paying off, the money you can make just by putting in the stock market, that's thousands of dollars a year. If you put that into real estate, that's hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So it's a little bit different than earning incremental money on $20,000 than it is $200,000 kind of thing. So that's sort of my, at least my personal line of why I wouldn't talk someone out, but I don't know. Like A lot of people in the financial advisement community, they love math. Everything comes down to math. But whatever it is with mortgages, they don't love math. They ignore math. And it's like, why are we all trusting in math across the board everywhere? But in mortgages and real estate, we're like, no, psychology. I mean, psychology, I feel good when I go buy new sneakers and I go buy a new wardrobe. Psychology, I feel great. I'm going to invest wisely everywhere else in my life, but psychology wise, I'm going to run up this credit card bill. Like, I don't ever see eye to eye. Like, it doesn't make sense. It's like either we're all in on math or not. Like, why do we pick and choose math? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. 
Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. You've mentioned a couple times that you've benefited from appreciation, and that reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, and that's the harder I work, it seems the luckier I get. And I completely agree. I think you're right. Yeah, there is a little bit of luck there, but luck is manufactured. Sometimes there's luck that you just you get lucky and, and you didn't really do much to deserve it. But there are a lot of times, I'm a firm believer that luck is created and you put yourself in those situations to create that luck. And so I don't want people to hear the show and think that you just got lucky on all these. But in terms of paying things off, yeah, I completely agree. You and I are 100% aligned. These other arguments that a lot of people make just don't really make a lot of sense to me personally. Have you, being into the spreadsheets like you are, have you done an analysis or any math around this next situation that I'm going to explain? Because this is oftentimes another argument that people will make is, I'm going to go five years, pay off my house. And then after that, I'm going to take all that extra money that I was paying to my mortgage, and then I'll start investing it. And then I'll still have my paid off house, and then I'll start investing. Of course, there's that opportunity cost of five years or 10 years, however long it takes to pay off your mortgage. But you do have significantly more money to start investing. So have you done any math on that? And if so, what do the numbers look like? Yeah. So this is a big part of my book as well, a house fire book. I wish I had the exact numbers, but let's say I think it was something like the average car note is $25,000. And the average payments maybe on that car note, maybe let's say 400 bucks a month. Okay. So I'm a real estate investor and a real estate advisor. I'm a licensed realtor as well. So people come to me for these sort of advice all the time. And they say, hey, um, I've got five years left in my car note. When I pay that off, I'm coming to you and we're going to go buy an investment property. And I said, well, okay, well, that sounds like a terrible decision. <laughs> Come to me now and let's go buy a real estate property. Because if you've got $25,000, instead of paying off that car note, we can go buy that $25,000, put it down as a down payment on a $100,000 house. That $100,000 house will find you one. Maybe it's a duplex or triplex and maybe it's out of town and we have to have a property manager we can find one for you that's $100,000 regardless of where you live that probably will cash flow you 300 bucks a month right so you have a car note right now that you're going to pay off it's costing you $300 a month it's going to cost you $25,000 or we can buy a rental property that costs $25,000 that spits off a cash flow of $300 so what happens well that house just burned up the car note right cuz 
the $300 over here is going to pay for that $300 over there. So you're killing your bills, you're burning your bills through house fire, sort of my philosophy. And the benefits of this is, hey, well, what about my car note? Okay, well, let's fast forward five years. Well, five years from now, you have a paid off car and you have a house that is appreciating most likely, but also that $300 that was paying your car net now goes to you. You can spend that $300 however you want. You could apply it to another bill, but you wouldn't have been in the situation if you waited five years. Because if you waited five years to pay off that car note, well, now you don't have $25,000 because you've been throwing $5,000 a year at that car note. And that $100,000 house is probably $110,000 now. And so you just skipped out, you just missed out on five years of gain. That car note that goes back to the Sacagawea coin is locked in rate for five years. Take advantage of it. Don't pay that off. Find an asset. A cash flowing asset that will pay that off. And so that's what I, what I did. And so if any of your listeners follow the FIRE movement, they sort of do the math that they trust so much, this math, let's do the math. And what they do is take every single bill in your life and multiply it by 25, the annual bill. So let's take an example. Like I had a $150 internet bill and I knew I would never get rid of this bill for the rest of my life. It'll, I can't go to Costco and buy internet access in bulk which is like the fire movement, like start there first kind of thing. That wasn't a possibility. So the fire movement says, we'll take a year's worth of internet bills, which is, and I think that's $12,000 and multiply that by 25, which is 1800. Take that by 25, multiply that by 25 years worth of savings. And that's $45,000. And then that's just the internet bill. But then you do that for your phone bill, your utilities, your rent. And that's how you get your fire number. Your annual expenses multiplied by 25. As long as you have that in savings, you're financially independent. You can retire early and you just do a 4% withdrawal rate off everything. So that's great. So I have to save $45,000 right now before I can quote unquote retire to pay just that one internet bill. But I'm in real estate. I do this all day. I'm not saving up $45,000. It's going to take me 10 years. I got to stay in my day job for 10 more years. Let's cut that in half. $22,500, I can go put that as a 20% down payment on a house, $2,500 in closing costs. That's going to cash flow me $150 a month. Boom. That house now pays for my internet bill for the rest of my life. I didn't have to save $45,000. I only had to save $22,500. Half the fire number. So all these people who are like, save, 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 they basically have to be millionaires in stock holdings, but then they can't live like a millionaire because now they're on a constrained budget for the rest of their life. My way is if you do it through house fire, I get to live larger every year because every year my mortgage payment gets paid off by the tenants. Rental income typically goes up every single year. So the earlier I get started on this house fire path, the larger and larger I get to live in retirement. I don't have to be on a constrained budget. You know, as I collect these properties by one a year, you don't have to be a real estate mogul. All it takes is five, which I explain in my book. Just do five, five properties in five years and sit back and wait, it's half the money of typical fire advice, and you're going to live larger and larger in retirement. And who wouldn't want that path? It seems crazy to me, but then anyone who's not in real estate, the psychology of paying off a mortgage. And I'm like, well, if you understood money, you wouldn't be able to sleep at night because you're losing money every single night. You and I are literally perfectly aligned on this. I couldn't agree more. Because you're so right. People bring that psychological argument in and I'm like, I get it. But I feel worse if I knew that these things were paid off. I feel psychologically better following the strategy that you and I are talking about today. And again, this is something that you can't really, other than your book, 
not a lot of books talk about this. You don't get taught this in school. Not a lot of people really talk about this. So it's something you kind of just have to learn on your own unless you're listening to podcasts like this. And so I just stumbled upon it. I went through the exact same situation as you mentioned with the cars. At the time when I got my first when I bought my first rental property, I had a car note and it was not that much money. It was like ten or fifteen thousand dollars. Total payment was like two hundred fifty bucks or something like that a month. But when I got the loan, I had actually worked at the credit union that I got the loan at. So the rates were one point two four percent and I got a half percent discount. So my auto loan was zero point seven four percent. And I'm like, okay, do I take this money and buy a rental property? It's gonna cash flow me like four hundred dollars a month. Or do I pay off this loan? And I'm like, it just clearly makes so much sense to me to just buy this rental property and keep this note. One, the interest rate's so low. Two, the mortgage is going to cover it. And everything else you explained holds true. And so I ended up taking that even a little bit further with student loans. And everybody listening to the show is probably familiar with the idea of house hacking. And so I like semi coined this idea of student loan hacking, where rather than rapidly paying down your student loans, Assuming that they're not at exorbitant rates, assuming that they're relatively normal and low rates, mine are at 4%. So rather than taking that money and paying off the loans, I bought rental properties. Now my rental properties cover my student loans. And I just call that student loan hacking. You got it. And I would take this further. Like if you can go get 0% down car loans, I would go buy five cars today and put them all up on Turo. I just, Spent 30 days in Hawaii. I paid $250 a day on Turo because there's no rental cars. I was paying more for my car than I was for my lodging. And I just see an opportunity. I need to go buy as many cars as I can, put these up on Turo, and make $4,000 a week off these things. And this will rapidly pay off all those car notes. And then in two or three years, when the car shortage is over, you've got five paid off cars. It's the same concept as real estate investing, just on a smaller scale, if you don't have the money to invest in real estate right now. You're not going to believe this, but I literally bought an RV yesterday to do this exact thing, to rent it out. Oh, cool. Yes. Because I had a guest on the show a couple months ago. He's pretty big into real estate and he just said that he got into RV rentals because it's the same idea. There's so many people that want to rent RVs. The rates are ridiculous. Like I would never pay it, but a lot of people do. And the financing is amazing on them. And it's just, it's the exact same thing you just mentioned with Turo, but with an RV. And I get to use it myself too when it's not rented. And it's awesome. Yeah. And people are like renting U-Haul trucks now because there's no options for rental cars. And this actually reminds me, like 10 years ago, I had a similar concept where I learned somehow that you have to retire school bus after 100,000 miles. That's just the government pays for the public school buses. You've got to get rid of them after $100,000 just for safety reasons. But also these school buses are very well kept up because they're, you're transporting children, right? So they're inspected constantly. So they're in really good shape, even at 100,000 miles. And so I wanted to do, in the realm of my budget living, I wanted to do a cross-country trip. And I couldn't. I didn't have the car. I didn't have a plane ticket. Didn't want to take a bus. So I bought a school bus, a retired school bus. It was one of the short buses for 1300 bucks, And uh, <laughs> drove it cross-country and back. And when I got back, I was able to sell it for 1500 bucks. And I was like, oh, this worked out really great because like, there's an aftermarket for these things for RV rentals. People convert them. There's aftermarket for private schools who buy these buses. There's aftermarket for just sort of transportation, people, airport shuttles and stuff like that. So there's always opportunities. It doesn't have to be real estate, but it's finding that opportunity, leveraging it. And I basically got paid to travel cross country and back kind of thing is the way 
I always try to find a way, how can I get an asset to pay for whatever I want to accomplish in life? And you're doing it. That RV is awesome. That's a great story. And I know you're going to have about 15 future podcasts like, I can't believe how much money I'm making with this RV. And then what's going to happen is everyone's going to comment on your podcast. Robert is so lucky because the RV market, he's just the luckiest guy. And it's like, no, like we're talking right now. Go buy your RV. Robert was the person who did it, right? You know that you should go do it, but you sit on your butt and you don't invest. You keep doing the same things. Your life's not going to change, but the people who are taking those chances, doing activity, great things happen to them. And then you try to discount it by calling it luck. And you're not lucky. You're an entrepreneur. You're managing your finances. You're talking about money. You're doing everything right. And the craziest part is it takes 0% down. I did not put a dollar down to buy that RV. And it was a $70,000 RV. I didn't have to put any money down. Yeah. So non-wealthy people look at that and be like, oh, $70,000 wealth. I look at that and I'm like, you just got a free ATM machine because you're going to put that on Turo. It's going to rent in a week. I don't know the going rates of RV. What is it? Like 500 bucks a day, $1,000 a day? So listen to this. You're going to be amazed. I don't know exactly the nightly rates. I have to look it up, but it's somewhere between $200 and $400, depending on the week. Fourth of July, of course, is going to be a big one, etc. But when we found this out, and so we didn't want to just dive in. We like to do our research and get involved. So we found that about 45 minutes from my business partner, I, who I buy rentals with, where there's about 45 minutes away, there's a dealer who s- sells them now. But for 40 years, all they did was rentals. They didn't sell them. They made so much money from rentals. They have like 40 or 50 fleet of RVs and all they do is rent them. I went there. It's like a little mom and pop shop. We went there to look at some, see what we wanted to buy. And so I just so happened to talk to the owner and it's a mom and pop shop. She was super cool. She literally gave me a 25-page book of their basic standard operating procedures, walked me through their entire model. And she was literally showing me these invoices. This guy paid over $5,000 for a 10-day trip. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, four-door sedan in Hawaii, I was paying $4,000 a week. I mean, I had no other option, right? And so I can't imagine an RV. Like, typically, you're not going to take an RV for a day or two, but like, you're going to take a week-long trip. So what's your note payment every month? $430. You basically rent it one day out of a month, then you're fine. And no one rents an RV for one day. And let's assume you rent it one weekend out of every single month. Not you have 30 days in a month, but let's say you rent it for a three-day weekend. You're going to make $1,500. You're making $1,000 a day. That's house fire. Let's go to your bills, Robert. What do you spend a thousand dollars a month on? I house hack, so my portion of the rent's like six hundred bucks. So like, it's not a lot. And the crazy piece is, we rent it for one week. Like, let's just say we got one week for five thousand. Maybe it's four thousand. Maybe it's six thousand. But let's just say it's somewhere in that realm. The total cost of our note for the whole year is like forty eight hundred bucks, five thousand dollars. You rent it one time for one week, and you cover the asset mortgage payment for the whole year. And then you could use it all you want, or you could continue to rent it or whatever. And I race dirt bikes. And a lot of times, RVs are one of the best solutions to go to the races. So my plan is to rent it out. And then when I want to use it, I just use it whenever I want to go to the races. And it's perfect. Yeah, this is great. Real estate investing is this exact same concept, just on a higher scale. I guess the one catch would be, I don't know if a $70,000 RV, you'd be able to sell it for $100,000 in three years, but it doesn't matter. You're going to be making $1,000 a month minimum, probably more for the rest of your life. And if you get three, then you got $3,000 coming in. That probably is going to cover all your expenses. And you're you fired, Robert. At that point, you're financially independent. You've retired early. You've got assets that are cash flowing, covering all your bills in your life. And then you start making up payments. With the, you know, That's what I do. It's like, I've got all my bills covered. 
let me go buy a house so I can go spend a month in Hawaii. Let me go, let me buy a house that's going to pay for this ridiculous Turo rates for my car rentals. So everything feels free now because anything I want to do in my life, I buy an asset that pays for it and I'm going to have to look into RVs now. Sorry, I might be your competition. That's okay. So there's so many things that I want to mention that you just talked about. I don't mind the competition. And the guy that I talked to about it said the same thing. He's like, listen, I'm giving you my whole story right now. I don't care. You live all the way on the East Coast. I live in California. We're not competing. Abundance mindset. And you're down in Georgia. That doesn't bother me. And so in real estate, it's the same idea. Like I invest solely long distance. And people ask me all the time what that city is. And I'll tell anybody that asks. I talk about it on the podcast. Hundreds of thousands of people hear this every month. And they're like, why would you ever tell anybody that you're increasing your competition? And I'm like, abundance mindset. I don't care because of that. But also, you know how many people are actually going to take action on this? Pretty much nobody. So I'm really not increasing my competition. I'm not really that worried about it. You did mention two other things. You mentioned that the RV is not going to appreciate, and you're 100% right. That is one of the downsides. And the other downside is in poor economic times, let's say we enter a recession, it's probably not going to be a lot of demand for an RV rental. But I'm not overly concerned about that because the mortgage or the note on it is $440 a month. I mean, it's not a ton of money, right? We're not talking $4,000 a month. It's something that I could probably cover with my emergency fund for quite a while if I needed to. And so I don't see it as a huge risk. Here's your worst case scenario. If that happens, you park it on a mobile home lot and you rent it out for $400 a month. I mean, it's no different than a mobile home. It might be, you know, it's a smaller one, but that's the going rate for like the cheapest mobile home lot is 400 bucks for a trailer. So, but at that point, I would imagine you would have made your $70,000 back and even if you throw the car away, no harm done. You that's like what a cash out refi is. And people are always like, "Oh, I want to pay off my mortgage." But let's say you bought a house for $200,000 and now it's worth $400,000. And they're like, "Oh, I'm so close to paying off my mortgage. I can't wait. I can't wait." And I'm like, no, do a cash out refi, pull out $300,000. They're like, no, why would I do that? 30 more years. And I was like, well, you bought it for $200,000 and you're pulling out $300,000. You get $100,000 tax free. At this point, there's absolutely no risk on that home. If it burns to the ground, you win, you know, kind of thing, because you already got your money out. And even if you do that cash out refi and you're still renting it, you're probably cash flowing each month, but you got money in hand. You've got no risk. And so I try to do that with all my properties. I try to improve them and do a cash out refi. So I actually have $0 invested in all those properties. I just pull all the money out, reinvest it, wait for it to appreciate, cash out refi, pull that money out. And so sure, I've got 50 single family homes, but I have no dollars in them because I've already pulled out all the money I put into it and they're risk-free and they're still cash flowing. So there's all these different scenarios if you just use debt as a leverage to grow your wealth. And I think people maybe are just scared of taking those jumps. But it, again, I have to put it in a spreadsheet to convince my wife, but maybe that's what we got to do to all these other podcast listeners who, who, don't, who think we're crazy, but it just makes sense. And with, like, with the RV, it is a lot of people are like, well, it's a depreciating asset. And you're right, it somewhat is, but it's not a car. And if you look at the market, let's just say 15 years from now, it's not brand new, but it's pretty close to new. So 15 years from now, it'll be like 15, 16, 17 years old. These still hold their value pretty well. If I had to guess that even in 15 years, it'll probably be worth roughly 20,000, 25,000 if I had to guess. It's only lost half its value and I've made a ton of money in cash flow from it. Definitely going to be net positive by a lot. And two, it's just other people are paying that note. Like it's not something that I have to pay. So there's just, I just don't see it as a massive risk. And you mentioned the spreadsheet piece. And I think I put a poll out on, on Instagram the other day and I said, 
do you prefer to be slightly above average or do you prefer to be the best that you personally can be? And I think that's the disconnect between Dave Ramsey and what we're talking about. I think if you follow Dave Ramsey, you will be better than average and even quite a bit better than the average person when it comes to personal finance and and wealth. But if you do what we're talking about, you're going to achieve exponentially even more than that. And you're going to become the best version of yourself that you can personally be. And I think you just have to decide for yourself, which is the path you want to go down. And I don't think there's a right or wrong. It's whoever you are. Yeah. I mean, you have to be interested in the stuff. You have to be excited about it. Like, I get excited by the deal, right? Excited by the opportunity. But if you can't bother to read one book on whatever you're interested in or listen to one podcast of whatever you're interested in, then you're not going to achieve anything that you want, kind of thing. But yeah, that all makes sense. But also to come back to your point on that, let's say you bought this RV for 70000 and over time it's worth $50,000, but someone's paid down. $40,000 of it, you still have a $30,000 RV that's worth $50,000. So there's a spread there. But also, you've got a vacation. You've got a built-in vacation. If the economy is that bad, oh, it'd be so nice that Robert has an RV to travel all around the country when we're all struggling. You know, like He's struggling too, but he bought this asset that other people paid off, and now he gets to even benefit from using the RV for personal reasons. I don't think a lot of people will appreciate, but I think you will, is you can rent the RV on Airbnb. So I can leave it parked in my driveway at my house and Airbnb will allow you to list it on Airbnb. So we can rent it as a come drive it away and and take it as a rental or rent it as a rental unit in my driveway as on Airbnb. And the third piece, I think this is kind of creative. I'm kind of proud of this strategy that I thought of. But this is... I have a duplex, I house hack, I rent out one side and I live in the other. But I'm taking it even a step further and I'm going to Airbnb my unit. Not all the time, but sometimes. And if it's Airbnb'd, I'll stay in the RV in my driveway. And if it's not Airbnb'd, I'll stay in the house and rent out the RV. So it's like, I just, so many opportunities to make money just from this one asset. Yeah, that is genius. I mean, I had someone rent one of my triplexes once. She rented all three units in the triplex, put them all up on Airbnb, and then she would just live in whatever unit wasn't rented that night. She would just follow stuff in every single unit or just her go bag. And you're doing the exact same thing. You've got one side long-term tenant rental or one side Airbnb, one side RV. And if one is booked, then you live in the other one. And yeah, you're going places. That's the mindset you need. That's amazing. That's going to be awesome. So when's your book going to be coming out? Because you've got some good stuff to share here. I really appreciate that. It means a lot coming from you. We chatted before the show. We mentioned that we had talking points, a bunch of things we wanted to go through. We mentioned that it would probably be a three-hour episode if we touched on them all. And you were definitely right. I think we have a lot more to talk about. I don't think we even touched on too many of the talking points, which is fine because we had an amazing conversation. So we'll have to have you back a second time and probably even a third time. Before we give a handoff to where people can find you, I like to wrap up the show by turning the tables for a second and letting the guest ask me a question. So what question do you have for me? So I'm new in the podcast space. I just launched a podcast for real estate agents called Agent Upgrade. I'm about to launch a podcast about this house fire concept as well. So what advice would you have as a beginner podcast for me to to grow an audience? Well, it depends if you want to grow an audience. So I think the first thing is define what your goal is with the podcast. If you're doing it as podcasting as a business itself, very, 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 very hard to do. The economics just don't make a lot of sense. Now, you can turn it into a business if you sell something else. Keep the podcast not necessarily as the product or service, but sell a course or a book or some sort of 
thing that goes along with it. But if you're just going to purely monetize the podcast via advertising, you have to be in the top 1% of the world to even make it somewhat close to being worthwhile. And so really define what you want the podcast to be. Do you want it to be a lead funnel? Do you want it to be... What exactly do you want it to be? And so from there, in terms of growth, that kind of depends depending on what your goal is. If you want to grow it as a product or service that generates revenue itself, you have to do some growth hacking things. You have to go on a lot of other podcasts. You need to get good guests. You have to get the right guests, not necessarily big guests. So that's a huge misconception that podcasters have is that you have to have the biggest names. I think that's absolutely wrong. But if you want it to do to sell your books or your courses or whatever else, other products or services that you have, you don't necessarily have to have a big audience. You just have to have 500 to 1,000 listeners per episode maybe. And you really want to just focus on building trust and quality and making sure that those people feel like they know you and they can trust you and things like that. So kind of depends on your goal and your strategy, but that's always how I think about it. That makes sense. Someone told me that you know you want to do this. A successful podcast is one that you would do for free. I think that's fair. Like You enjoy the topic. You're excited about it. It's not a business. It's like, hey, I would do this on my free time. He's like, if you keep that mindset, good things will come. And that sort of lines with what you're saying. So thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. Where can the audience go to connect with you and find you on the internet, find your book, your products, your services, anything else you got going on? Sure. My name is Alan Corey, but my friends call me AC. And so I do everything from my house. So everything is branded the house of AC on social media. I have YouTube videos. If you go to thehouseofac.com, if you Google the House of AC, you're going to learn a lot about air conditionings and that has nothing to do with me. So possibly my branding needs some improvement. But for now, I'm thehouseofac.com. I will put a link to all of Alan's resources in the show notes below. I'll also put links to a bunch of the different stuff that we talked about throughout the episode that you guys will find relevant and useful. Alan, thanks so much for joining me. This was definitely hands down one of my favorite conversations. I already can't wait to do it again soon. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks for having me. Great time. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.